DiscerningHearts.com and the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study presents Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon Doran, along with her husband Steve, are founders of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, whose mission is to actively seek truth and raise up disciples for our Lord Jesus Christ through an in-depth Catholic Bible study. Sharon, who holds two master's degrees in education and in pastoral theology with an emphasis in sacred scripture, is an experienced Bible study teacher for over a decade. She has a passion for scripture that motivates and challenges her students to immerse themselves in God's word and apply his message to their everyday lives. We now begin the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Doran. I am so very blessed to be with you today as we open up God's Word together. God's Word is living and active, and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but written by human authors. So we see the dual nature of the Word, just as Jesus Christ, the Word, has a dual nature. He's fully God, and He's fully man. The Word of God, the Word made flesh, and the Word we hold in our hand also has a dual nature, because it's written by the Holy Spirit, but by a human author. So it has that duality in nature. What a gift we were given on November 18th of 1965, when His Holiness Pope Paul VI released the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. It's known as De Verbum. I love the document, and I'd like to read a paragraph that that I love at number 21 under the heading of Sacred Scripture in the Life of the Church. The Church has always venerated the divine scriptures, just as she venerates the body of the Lord, since, especially in the sacred liturgy, she unceasingly receives and offers to the faithful the bread of life from the table both of God's word and of Christ's body. She has always maintained them and continues to do so, together with sacred tradition as the supreme rule of faith. Since, as inspired by God and committed once and for all to writing, they impart the word of God himself without change and make the voice of the Holy Spirit resound in the words of the prophets and the apostles. So, my friends, this is a very powerful word. We venerate the word of God, the sacred word just as we venerate the body of Christ. Today, we're going to first discuss a couple of early church fathers. Number one, they both love the Eucharist and they both love the Word. The first one will be St. Ignatius of Antioch, and the second one, St. Polycarp of Smyrna. Both were disciples of Jesus under the instruction of St. John the Evangelist, and both were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. And we will turn to the early years then of the life of Jesus. Now, we don't hear anything about Jesus in the New Testament after he hits age 12, and he's been found in the temple by his parents. They go back home to Nazareth, and then he grows in wisdom and stature, Luke tells us, until age 30, when he reappears on the scene again for the final three years of his life in his public ministry. What about those lost 18 years, those hidden 18 years? In this lecture, I'll discuss those hidden years a little bit. That same martyr, St. Ignatius of Antioch, who died for the faith by being ripped apart by lions in the Colosseum in Rome, 
Bishop Ignatius of Antioch maintained that there were three top secrets that had to remain hidden from Satan until after the crucifixion and resurrection had been fully accomplished, Bishop Ignatius of Antioch wrote a letter to the Ephesians where he stressed three mysteries that in God's plan had to be kept hidden from the prince of this world, namely the devil. Those three dire secrets were these. Number one, the virginity of Mary. Number two, the virgin birth of Jesus. And number three, the death of of Jesus on the cross. I will think that you will find this to be a thought-provoking discussion, why it is that those three things must lay hidden. But we all remember Jesus in various biblical accounts when he asks them, don't tell anyone. He does a miraculous sign or wonder, and he says, but don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone about this. And, and we wonder, why is he saying that? Why does he want them to tell everyone? So we're going to take a look at that in Scripture, and we're going to explore some ways that Mary is the new Eve. We are banished children of the old original Eve for a while, until the new Eve has an offspring that will crush the head of the prince of this world. And when that's complete, then everyone can know. We can shout it from the rooftops. But... We know that the prince of this world is not going to be too happy about it. In fact, Satan is furious. And as Revelation 12, 17 tells us, the dragon was angry with the woman, and he went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Now, that would be us. So we are still in a battle. Christ's victory on the cross, the perfect sacrifice has been won. And He has won us a way back to the Father if we choose to repent, to believe, and to be baptized and to follow Him home to the Father. And there is, as Revelation 21 tells us, a time when He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. Let's begin this part two lecture series right now on the baptism of Jesus Christ. Good evening, everyone. Did you ever hear this ditty, baptism, baptism? It's like a washing machine. You go in dirty and you come out clean. <laughs> we learned tonight that's not quite the case. The baptism of Jesus Christ we're studying tonight from Matthew 3, Luke 3, and Mark chapter 1. We're going to talk a little bit first about the hidden years of Jesus Christ. These are quite intriguing. If you thought about it, from the moment he's born, he's in danger, right? From the moment our Savior comes into the world, he is in danger. They fly to Egypt, and on their return, we don't know how old Jesus is, but some of the paintings show him to be quite a bit older. We do know Herod the Great had died, and his son Archelaus was ruling, and Antipas. And Joseph chooses by dream to go where Antipas is ruling, the region of Galilee. Here's one by Rembrandt. Jesus looks a little older when they're returning. So the hidden years of Jesus Christ, they're intriguing. There's only one biblical account when he's 12 and found in the temple, teaching the elders, and they are astonished. This is the only event that breaks the silence in the gospel of these hidden years. And his mission is flowing out of his divine sonship, even at 12 years old. He tells his parents, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? 
So this month we have the feast of Saint Ignatius of Antioch, and he's one of my favorites. And in Matthew 18, Jesus called a little child to himself and said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like a little child, you remember that. Our tradition tells us that the little child he put on his lap that day was Saint Ignatius of Antioch. He goes on to become a bishop and martyr. He was the third after St. Peter the Apostle to rule the Church of Antioch during the persecution of Trajan. And he was condemned to death by Trajan and sent to Rome in fetters to be eaten by lions. So all the icons you'll see of him are with lions. In AD 106, Roman Emperor Trajan proclaimed a period of thanksgiving to the pagan gods for all the territory Rome was conquering, victory of war. And he ordered every town to pay tribute to the pagan gods and the bishop of Antioch said, uh-uh, not going to do it. And it infuriated Trajan, and he said, you will be eaten by lions in front of the Senate, and he has him ordered to be brought to Rome. That's Ignatius of Antioch. He writes seven letters on the way. All seven letters have survived. Six are to different churches, and one is to St. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, who happened to be his good friend. Now, Polycarp and Ignatius of Antioch both sat under the teaching of St. John the Evangelist. So you can imagine they were pretty well-formed, right? So from the lap of Jesus to the Bishop of Antioch assigned by St. Peter and sent to the Senate to be eaten by lions. This is Ignatius of Antioch. He became a living sacrifice. And one of my favorite quotes from him, as he's on his journey, he writes a letter to the Romans and says, allow me to be eaten by the beasts while I'm on my way reaching to God. I am God's wheat, and I am to be ground by the teeth of wild beasts so that I may become the pure bread of Christ. He got it. He got it. He said, I want only God's bread, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, formed of the seed of David. And for drink, I crave his blood, which is love that cannot perish. He got it. And his friend Polycarp got it too. You'll remember when Polycarp was burned at the stake. And remember as his body burned, what did it smell like? The baking of bread. It gave off the most pleasant odor and everyone said, it smells like bread's baking. It was his body. Those two were both friends, and they were both apostolic fathers of the church, which means they learned from the apostles directly. I read this book this summer. It quickly became my favorite read. It's Mary and the Patristic Fathers of the Church, and Antioch is quoted in here. And in his letter to the Ephesians, he stressed that there were three mysteries in God's plan that had to be kept hidden from the devil. Three mysteries that had to be kept hidden from the devil. They're top secret. Satan can't find out about the virginity of Mary, number one. Satan can't find out about the virgin birth. And Satan cannot find out about the death of Jesus on the cross until after it's over. These are three mysteries that Satan absolutely cannot know about. He doesn't explain why or how these mysteries had to be hidden, but some of the other church fathers will help us with that. Let's take the first one, the virginity of Mary. Why is it so top secret? Because she is the new Eve, and we can figure this out going back the other way. Eve is a virgin woman at the time of the fall. It is not until Genesis chapter 4 that she lays with Adam and conceives a son. So at the time of the fall, she's a virgin. And God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. At that time, Eve was a virgin woman. Eve is a virgin. God is all. She's an original holiness. She's an original glory. That's all she needs. God is her everything, just like Mary. Adam is a virgin man. God is all. He's the fulfillment of everything. They don't need each other. They've got God the Father lavishing his love on them. They are totally content. 
They are in original glory. So it's not until after the fall that she lays with Adam now and conceives a son. This is really important. Before the fall, the old Eve in the old creation is a virgin woman. The new Eve in the new creation is also a virgin called woman. John will give us a clue in John 2, when on the seventh day, John's a day counter, there is a wedding and the old covenant, the old wine, the water turns into new wine. Messiah has come, Amos is fulfilled, wine is running down the mountain. Dear woman, he says to his mother, so Mary is the virgin woman that Satan's been waiting for, lying in wait for, waiting for this offspring of a virgin, has to stay hidden. The virginity of Mary has to stay hidden from Satan, from the prince of the world, from the prince of darkness. When God cursed the serpent, Eve was still a virgin. Satan is waiting, lying for a virgin to devour, her offspring to devour, right? Whatever this virgin will conceive, that will be the Messiah that's going to crush Satan's head. So he's waiting and watching. This has to be kept secret. The virginity of Mary. Second one that has to remain secret is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Why? Why is this top secret? Concealed information, classified. Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. Mary remained virgin, but the marriage of Joseph is the perfect disguise. God has provided a just man, a holy man, a chaste man. And it fools the world that they're having marital relations. It even fools people today. They say, oh, Mary couldn't have been a virgin. Joseph couldn't have been a virgin. He surely couldn't have been a virgin. All those years, he couldn't have, no, they couldn't have done that. They forget Mary's full of grace. Thomas Aquinas and the medieval fathers, they knew it was important, the scripture, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. She's virgin when she conceives, she's virgin when she bears. And Aquinas explained that, that it's just like light passing through glass. The light passes through the glass, but it doesn't shatter the glass. That's how Mary's virginity was. It's miraculous, like light passing through glass. The conception and the birth are miraculous. Here's a prism of light passing through glass. Didn't shatter the glass. When it comes out on the other side, the prism of light is separated into seven beautiful colors, distinct. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, comes through Mary's virginal canal and doesn't shatter it, but the pure light of Christ is divided into a prism of colors, seven, for the sacraments, baptism, reconciliation, Eucharist, confirmation, matrimony, holy orders, anointing in the sick, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, is in each of those sacraments, perfect perfection, new covenant, perfect white light, didn't shatter Mary, but refracted into the sacraments of the bride of Christ, the church. The birth is virginal, it's a miraculous birth. Mary is left an intact virgin, perpetually. Aquinas explains it like this, you remember when Jesus walked through the walls after the resurrection, he comes right through the walls and says, peace be with you, and the walls weren't all broken down. Jesus Christ came through Mary's birth canal just like that, Augustine tells us, miraculously just going right through. St. Gregory the Great in the seventh century said it seems fairly simple if we just understand that the virgin birth is not natural. It is a miraculous birth. This is God. Okay, so Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Eve's children are born with original sin. It is imprinted on their soul. It's in their DNA. 
Eve is not virgin shortly after the fall because she lays with Adam and they conceive. They're banished from the garden. They're banished from the triune God. God the Father is in the garden. Jesus, the tree of life, is there. And the Holy Spirit, the river of life, is there. And they're banished. They're separated. They're kicked out for their own good. But God tells her, I will greatly increase your pains in childbirth. And your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over you. What does that mean? It's always a curious line. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Who was the virgin Eve's desire for before the fall? God. Her desire was all for God. He was her total all. He was the fulfillment of all her desire. He was everything. Same with Mary, the new Eve, when she says to the angel, how can this be since I have no relations with a man? And she didn't plan to have relations with the man because she's full of grace and God is her all. God is her everything. He's the fulfillment of all her desire. God is everything. I, I don't plan to be with man. I don't need to be with man. You're everything to me, Lord. She's intentional about her virginity, as JP2 tells us. When you're full of grace, God is the fulfillment of all your desire. Ralph Martin writes a book about the saints that understood this. God is the fulfillment of all we desire. They had been separated from God. Can you imagine how scary that must have been? They had perfection. They had everything. He took care of every need. He was a good, loving father. He gave them every good gift. But now they're kicked out. Now all she has is her husband. <laughs> Not her loving father. And your desire will be for your husband now. <sighs> okay. And he will rule it over you. Wow, this is different. The husband's love is not the same as the perfect love of the father. It can't be. God is love. He is the perfection of love. He's perfect love. Perfect love casts out all fears. They're separated from that. They're kicked out. They're banished. They must have been so fearful. Adam, what are we going to do? How are we going to eat? How are we going to... We're kicked out of the garden. Where are we going to... They had no worries before. They had no fear. All they knew was perfect love. But that wasn't good enough for them because Satan slithered and talked in her ear. And now they want to know more. Remember, there were two trees, a tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge. And they chose knowledge that day over life. It's not going to be perfect like it once was. Now there's thorns. Now there's thistles. But they're going to cling to one another like never before because that's all they have. They don't have the father now. So the two will become one flesh, and they'll cling to one another. And God, in his great mercy, gives them the marital embrace. And he does that because it's a slight reflection of him. It's nowhere near what they had. But the marital embrace will be a gift from God to remind them of a glimpse of himself. Because the Father and Son are perfectly one, and it's the spirit of life that processes out of them. And in the marital embrace, the husband and wife are perfectly one, and the spirit of life can process through them in procreation. But Satan, the thief, the murderer, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He hates life. God is life. There's no death in him. He's eternal life. He hates the marital embrace because it reflects the Trinity. It reflects God. He can't stand it. He can't create, so he steals. He's a thief. He's a murderer from the beginning. He lies, he mocks, he distorts, he twists. And he is so active in human sexuality because he cannot stand to gaze on the beauty of the marital embrace because that's the holy reflection of the Trinity. And he hates it. So he does anything he can to mock, to twist, to distort, 
to destroy. He loves the gay pride parade. Satan loves it. It's a mockery of marriage. This is not marriage. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And then he told Noah again, after he destroyed the earth by a flood, and he recreated a new creation. Again, God said he created them male and female. And he blessed them. And they were created. And he called them man and woman. And then when he told Noah to bring the animals on the ark, he said, make sure you get one male and one female. Why? Why was that? So they could procreate and repopulate. That was one of the purposes. So God gave two purposes to that marital embrace. One is bonding. They clung to each other. So it's unitive. That's all they had. They clung to one another. And then the other one was procreative, to make new life. Since they can't eat from the tree of life anymore, they've been banished from the garden, God's still going to allow them to partake in the life-giving process of bonding by the marital embrace and give them a chance at co-creating, procreating with God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Satan doesn't like it. Jesus comes to give life to the fullest, and Satan's a thief who wants to destroy life. And people are falling for it still today. Anything that is death is of Satan. Anything that is life is of Jesus. Jesus only has part in life. He's eternal life. He has no part in death. His resurrection conquered death. Jesus tells us, as Christ's followers, in love, we are baptized. And we're supposed to be telling the good news because wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it so out of love for our fellow man we need to spread the message of life we're called on as baptized Christians God said before you I said life and death blessings and curses choose life if you always choose life you'll never go wrong you cannot go wrong when you choose life now, Mary presents life itself in the temple that day, and Simeon, by the power of the Holy Spirit, knows it. They only had two turtle doves. They bring the poorest offering, but the lamb they hold in their arms is priceless. When Jesus ascends back to the Father after it's all over, we get separated from him again. He's gone. He's, gone. He's going up in the clouds. He's going up. He's going up. They must have been fearful. He's leaving. He's leaving us. But he says, do not be afraid. I will not leave you orphans. He promised he would send his Holy Spirit. And he gave us the church, the Eucharist, and baptism, and all the other seven sacraments. The bride of Christ provides all we need until we're reunited with him again. We're separated now, but we have his bride, the church, and we have all the sacraments to help us get back to him. And when Paul says in Ephesians 5, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. This is what Christ has left us to cling to in his absence with the power of the Holy Spirit in every one of those sacraments. So when they were separated and banished, they clung to one another in a one flesh union. And we're separated since the ascension and we cling to his bride, the church. And she helps us get back to him because of the Holy Spirit. We're not alone. The one flesh human marriage union is a slight, 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 slight reflection of the Trinity. It's holy. And the one flesh marriage supper of the lamb on the altar 
the consummation of the marriage feast of the Lamb at Mass is a slight reflection of the heavenly banquet. Christ gives us every good gift because he wants to fulfill our desire to be with him for all eternity. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, but then we'll know in full as he really is. And the Father in his great mercy will allow us to, to taste what it was once like to be in perfect union with him in the garden. We'll go back to that again, the fulfillment of all desire, being back in union with God. And it'll be glorious. The church fathers knew that the Holy Family hid those two things, the virginity of Mary and the virgin birth. Death through Adam, life through Christ. Eve is the mother of death, Mary the new mother of life, eternal life. They were both virgins at the fall. These two new ones are both virgins at redemption. Mary's virginity at conception is also a tenet of the Islam faith. Did you know that? The Muslims believe Mary was virgin at conception and that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin birth. It's in the Quran several times. And when John Paul, in 1999 at the Vatican, he kissed the Quran and it made quite a headline. But he knows that the Islam people love Mary and revere Mary. And Mary is the way to Jesus. And Archbishop Fulton Sheen said, I believe that the Blessed Virgin chose to be known as Our Lady of Fatima as a pledge and sign of hope to the Muslim people and as an assurance that they who show her so much respect will one day accept her. The Muslims occupied Portugal for many, 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 many years. And at the time they were finally driven out from Portugal, the chief had a beautiful daughter named Fatima. She stayed behind in that town and married a Catholic man. She gave up her Muslim faith and converted to Catholicism. And the husband was so much in love with her that he changed the name of the town to Fatima. And that is where Mary chose to appear in 1917. Mary's not done. The death of Jesus Christ also had to stay a secret from Satan. This is unlikely that this crucifixion would win our salvation. That is the hour of glory. But it has to stay hidden because this Christ has to do this to win that gateway back to the Father. And he can't let it be thwarted by Satan, so it's hush, hush, hush. Don't tell anybody. He also has to free those imprisoned spirits. Adam's waiting, Eve's waiting, Abraham's waiting, David's waiting. They're all waiting for this, to be free, to have a gateway back to the Father, a gateway back to heaven opened up. And after it's all over, now you can tell. Now you can tell everyone. But do you remember in the scriptures, all through the synoptics, they all have it. Jesus heals a leper, and he says, oh, but don't tell anyone. Oh, yeah, I, I heal. don't tell anyone yet. Don't tell anyone. Remember, he kept saying, but don't tell anyone. And as they're coming, the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, eyewitnesses. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone what you've seen. Don't tell anyone. You're thinking, why? Don't tell anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Don't let Satan get onto this. Satan is not all-knowing. Satan is not omnipotent. Satan does not know everything. Don't let him know. After he's raised from the dead, they start understanding these things, like they understand what he meant about him being the temple and that he'd be raised in three days. And they understand when he was washing their feet and he said to Peter, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later on you're going to understand. And on the road to Emmaus, their hearts were burning within them because it was after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, and now they're starting to understand. God refrains from solemnly revealing the mysteries of the glorious manifestation of Christ's victory until after the resurrection. He says to Mary Magdalene that morning, you know, he says, go tell everyone now, go tell everyone. Go tell the men, go tell everyone. 
And he says in that great commission, go to all the ends of the earth and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and tell them, I teach them everything, teach them everything I said, and I'll be with you till the end of the age. And then on Pentecost, he sends the Holy Spirit as he had promised to all and tells them to go to all the ends of the world. They're going to be filled with power. Okay, so those were the hidden years that had to stay hidden from Satan. Thank you, friends, for seeking truth with me today. Remember, truth has a name. His name is Jesus. And when we seek truth, we seek Jesus. Revelation 3.20 tells us, Behold, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. Ah, the church has always venerated the divine scriptures just as she venerates the body of the Lord, since especially in the sacred liturgy, she unceasingly receives and offers to the faithful the bread of life from the table both of God's word and of Christ's body. So open the door of your discerning heart today so he can dine with you, either by consuming the sacred scripture or by consuming his sacred body in the Eucharist. He wants to dine with you and fine dining it is, my friends. Until next time, keep seeking truth. You've been listening to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. To learn how you can become a participant, either online or in a classroom setting of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, go to seekingtruth.net. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com and the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study. Join us next time for Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.